experience. And so she stutters out in the Hebrew with very bad grammar, something like, if this, why me? Why me? Why am I going through this? I thought you were giving me what I wanted, and instead you gave me more difficulty. I wonder if you can relate to that. What did I do to deserve this? And God graciously responds. You notice she goes and prays to God herself. She goes and inquires of the Lord, and God actually responds to her and tells her, your suffering has a purpose. It's in verse 23. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. He's saying this goes beyond just you. The suffering that you feel, it's not not just limited to you for your purpose and meaning. There's whole nations that are going to come out of this. I'm shaping the destiny of the world through your suffering right now. That had to give her some comfort and some peace and some purpose to endure. But that's not what we're really focusing in on today. What we're going to talk about is it's your $5 word of the day. It's primogeniture. Primogeniture. I don't know if you guys have heard that before. I had to look up how to pronounce it, and I practiced in my office this week. It looks like primogeniture, but it's primogeniture. Now, the word primogeniture talks about the um, cultural practice of the firstborn son receiving all the inheritance, receiving the blessing, receiving the father's position in the household. All of those things go to the firstborn son. It's the way it was done. The firstborn would be the first one to mature and to be able to protect the family, to provide for the family, and to lead the family. That was the expectation. It always was the expectation. In many cultures, it still is. Primogeniture is was for them entirely expected and normal. The firstborn was destined to step into the role as the patriarch of the family, as the father, as the leader figure of this family. And because of that, he would be given the main inheritance. All that the father has is his so that he could do the job that he's supposed to do as the firstborn. And for the Bible's earliest families, this was the expectation and the norm. Adam expected it, Noah expected it, Abraham expected it, and Isaac expects it. You'll notice only Rebecca has the knowledge now that the younger will be the leader, that the older shall serve the younger. Only Rebecca knows that. To show us that salvation comes to this world by God's sovereign grace alone, God does the unexpected, though. When everyone's expecting the firstborn to rule, God does the unexpected, and he subverts, he turns inside out this idea of primogeniture. And from the first family of the Bible, Adam and Eve and their sons, God God turns that rule inside out, and he keeps doing that. So Adam's firstborn, Cain, you remember Cain and Abel? Cain kills Abel, then they have another, Seth, as the youngest. Cain doesn't get the blessing, does he? from God. His sacrifice isn't accepted. Abel's is. And the blessing of the line, the the line of promise through whom God will save the world goes to the youngest son, Seth, not the oldest son, Cain. Abraham's firstborn, Ishmael, did not get the inheritance and the blessing. He was sent away with Hagar, and the inheritance and blessing went to Isaac, who we've been introduced to again in this story. So in the midst of Rebecca's suffering, when she inquires of the Lord and says, why me? God says, your suffering has a glorious purpose, and the struggle you're experiencing within you means I'm already at work in you and in the world with my power and grace. 
to set aside the younger son for the purpose of salvation and blessing. I know that's a lot. What I'm trying to get at is what's happening here in Genesis 25 isn't just about Isaac and Rebekah, and it's not just about Jacob and Esau. It's about us, and it's about Christ. Something cosmic and historically significant is happening, and it's happening in the womb of Rebekah. So God says, the older shall serve the younger. And that's what happened. If you know the rest of the story, Esau and Jacob were at odds with one another from their birth into many, 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 many generations after they lived. Their descendants were still at odds together. The historian Josephus, the Jewish historian from the first century, tells us that Herod was a descendant of Esau. The book of Obadiah is about the descendants of Esau oppressing the ones that they're jealous of who are the descendants of Jacob and so on. That feud goes on. So when you picture Esau, you know, finally finding out the news that he's going to be subservient to his younger brother, how do you think he felt about that? Overjoyed? I think not. In Genesis 27, we'll see it. He loathed that. He wept over that reality. And then he planned to murder Jacob. We see this kind of older, younger sibling rivalry all throughout the rest of the Bible. We've talked about some of it already, but think about Genesis 1 to 3 for a minute. Who was created first, the beasts of the field or the man? Anyone know? Beasts of the field. (laughs) The beasts of the field were created first, and then the man. And the serpent comes as a beast of the field. And the rest of the Bible gives a lot of hints that that serpent was jealous. God's favor went to the dust creature who was born second, instead of to this, you know, heavenly being that was born first. Jealousy was a part of introducing evil to this world. Then we meet Cain, who's jealous of Abel. You know, God, why'd you accept the sacrifice of my younger brother and not mine? So he kills Abel. Then we have Esau and Jacob, We have Joseph in the later chapters of Genesis, the the youngest, well, the 11th of 12 brothers, who's got this dream that he's going to be superior to the rest of the brothers and like a a silly person shares that dream with his brothers and they hate him for it and they plan to kill him and they throw him in a pit and they sell him into slavery for it. The older brothers don't want to serve the younger brothers. They get jealous and they plan murder. Murder. Take it all the way into the New Testament. Romans 9, Paul is dealing with the reality of Gentiles and Jews and why the Gentiles are now participating in the new covenant that always belonged to the Jews. And he says, he quotes Micah talking about Jacob and Esau to explain it. Because he says, Israel is like the older brother and the Gentiles are like the secondborn. And right now they're getting the blessing and the Jews are jealous. And he says it's part of God's plan. That's how it's always been. We see that in the Bible, the firstborn brothers have always envied the younger who received the father's blessing. You with me? Does that make sense? There's a better older brother. There's a more noble firstborn. There is a brother who does not mourn, hate, 
or resist the father's plan to dignify the younger brothers. Many centuries later, one of Jacob's descendants is Jesus, as I'm sure you know. And this Jesus was God incarnate. He's the second person of the Trinity, put on human flesh, and he became a descendant of Jacob, who we're reading about in Genesis 25. And here are some of the titles that Jesus would be called in the New Testament. The firstborn. The firstborn of all creation. The firstborn from the dead. The firstborn among many brothers. He's the firstborn. So listen, if you put your faith in Christ, and this is what we were talking about with the kids this morning, if you believe in Jesus, you are a child of God, but you are not the firstborn. So what does that make us? We're the younger sons, the secondborn. So let's just be clear for a minute. God's subversion of primogeniture, is your word, that the firstborn must lose the blessing and the secondborn can get it, has been his plan all along. Let me say that again. The firstborn must lose the blessing of the father so that the secondborn can receive the father's blessing. Are you with me? That was true of Cain, and he was furious about it. It was true of Jesus. But of all the firstborn sons in the Bible, Jesus is the only one who doesn't begrudge the father's plan. Esau hears the older shall serve the younger, and he plots to kill his brother. Jesus hears those words, and he ties on the towel of a servant. He gets down on his knees, and he washes the feet of his brothers. See, Jesus took the Father's wrath, not the blessing. The wrath we deserved. And then he gave us the blessing that he deserved. Did it willingly. He wanted to because he loves the Father and because the Father loves you. Jesus' willing humility and sacrifice, the older brother serving the younger brother even unto death, it's what makes him worthy of all glory and all honor and all praise forever. That's why we worship Jesus. In Philippians 2, Paul tells us about Jesus obeying the Father and humbling himself for the sake of his brothers down into death. And he says this in Philippians 2, 9 through 11. After just saying that Jesus humbled himself to obey the Father, he says, therefore, in other words, because of that, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In other words, every older brother who had to step aside and let the younger brother get blessed was participating in a test. And everyone failed, except for Jesus. Which means not only is Jesus the true and better Israel, Jesus is the better Esau. He's the nobler, older brother who gladly, sacrificially serves us. Did you know the prodigal son? You know the parable of the prodigal son. Two brothers and a father. Younger brother gets his inheritance early, runs away, spends it, squanders it, 
lives a horrible life and feels shame and misery and comes home begging to be received, ready to be a slave in the household of his father, just to be back under his roof. Did you know that's not about the younger son? Did you know it's not about the father? That's a parable about the older brother who does nothing. The older brother who just stays back and when the younger son is brought home by the father, grumbles instead of celebrates. That's what the prodigal son is about. It's an indictment on the Jews of the day and on all of us who are just like that. And it's a celebration of Jesus, who's the better older brother. See, if the prodigal son parable was overlaid on the gospel, it would look pretty different because what would happen is when the younger son goes off and squanders his inheritance, rolling around in a pigsty, the older brother says, I'll go. I'll go get him. I'll bring him home. That's what Jesus has done. That's number one. The older shall serve the younger. The older has served the younger. Number two, resting secure in the Father's love. <laughs> I don't know how true this story is, but there's a story that comes from Spain about a father who was very estranged from his son, Paco. And after years of no contact at all with Paco, the father places an ad in the local newspaper. Here's what the ad says. Dear Paco, meet me in front of this newspaper office at noon on Saturday. All is forgiven. I love you. Signed, your father. On Saturday, there were 800 men named Paco in front of that newspaper office. Legend. Who knows? But it rings true, doesn't it? Because the desire of a father's love and acceptance runs very, very deep in all of us. Thousands of psychiatrists and therapists have very lucrative jobs right now because of that reality. There are so many of us who want our father's love and don't feel like we have it or can't have it or that our father, we want our father to be someone who's worthy of even giving us their love. Isn't that even more true of us and our Heavenly Father? If that's true of our earthly fathers, that we crave and want so badly to be loved and accepted by them, how much more true is that of us and our Heavenly Father? It's so easy to think, Jesus loves me, but Jesus had to die to twist the Father's arm to love me. God was mad at me, like the Father was mad, Jesus loved me. Jesus convinced the Father to forgive me. That's not the gospel. God loves you. The Father loves you. So if that's how your heart thinks about God, I have very good news for you today. And I hope it brings peace. Allow me a brief excursion to the New Testament. John chapter 16 in John's gospel, the disciples are wrestling with the fact that Jesus keeps saying, I'm going to be leaving soon. They're like, whoa, hold on. Like, we've been with you three years. We're really enjoying this. We really love you. We really don't want you to go. What are we going to do when we're on our own? They're freaked out. So Jesus comforts them. And he tells them that one day after he leaves them, their relationship with the Father will be healed. That's what he tells them. It's going to be healed beyond what they could even imagine. 
So up until that point, it seems that the disciples uh, brought their prayer request to Jesus. Like we were talking about, Evie, you'll remember, Jesus is an expert prayer. <laughs> and they knew that. They knew he was always going off and praying to his Father. And so they would bring their prayer request to him and say, could you take this to the Father for us? He listens to you. Jesus was, you know, the favored son. He was the son of heaven. He has the Father's ear. Here's what Jesus says to comfort them. John 16, 26 to 28. He says, in that day, you will ask in my name. And I don't say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you. For the Father himself loves you. Because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. See, Jesus' death and resurrection so healed our relationship to our Father in heaven that we can march right up to him and ask him for help. We barely believe that. Come on. Tim Keller has a great illustration. I don't remember where, but he said it. Uh, he says, you know, who would dare wake up a king at two in the morning for a glass of water? Only his child. And you have that kind of access to the Father in Christ. So if you have loved Jesus and believe that he comes from God, then you know that you've been born again into his family. And then you know you're a child of God, and so the Father himself loves you, and you can be certain of it. If you love Jesus, then you can be certain that the Father loves you. If that's true, and it is gloriously true, then here's what we need to do. We have to rest in the Father's love. We've got to rest in it. What does that look like? What does it look like to rest in the Father's love, to be secure in it? Well, our passage in Genesis 25 gives us two contrasting pictures. Uh, one, of what it looks like to need the love, to feel that desire, but to think that you have to earn it. And then the second, the contrast, is what it looks like to rest secure in the Father's love. So first, this is, this is the example of what it looks like to have to earn the Father's love. This example is Jacob. Our text tells us that the father, Isaac, particularly loved and favored Esau. That's got to hurt for Jacob. Now, the text does say exactly why Isaac likes Esau best. It's because of the food he provided. Verse 28 says, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. That's it. Now, literally in Hebrew, it says because of the game in his mouth. Think about it that way. The picture is actually more like a cat. You guys had a cat that's like an outdoor cat, and it, and it goes. <laughs> Who's had an outdoor cat, kids? Yeah, like all the kids. You've seen a cat. That's awesome. So have you ever seen a cat bring a dead bird in its mouth and drop it on the door? The cat's like, I brought you a present, and just comes with this bird in its mouth and drops it there. Esau did that. <laughs> Isaac loved it. That's the picture that we get. And Jacob feels jealous. Jacob feels left out. Jacob feels overlooked and unseen. So Jacob makes some food too. He's like, hey, I can cook. You like Esau for his food? I got food. Every time we see Jacob so far, he's cooking. We've got this passage in Genesis 27, which we'll get to next week. What's he doing again? He's getting food to try to get his father's love. But these two chapters paint a picture of a younger son 
desperate for his father's love, dying for it. He'll do anything. He's got to have it. And because he can't seem to be loved for who he is, he resorts to trickery, to swindling, to deception. Jacob swindles Esau out of his birthright. He swoops in at a moment of weakness when he knows Esau is going to be really tired and really hungry, and he moves in for the kill. In other words, Jacob is a legalist. He's legalistic. Here's why I say that. Legalism always eventually has to resort to deception. You think that keeping the rules as a legalist, and there are one of most of us in this room probably tend toward legalism or what's called antinomianism, where you think you can do whatever you want and you're totally fine, right? No rules, nothing matters. I tend toward legalism often in my heart. And here's what legalism does. It goes, well, I think I have to earn the Father's love by doing something or being something. I have to get the Father's love for myself. Then eventually you find out you can't do it. You can't keep the rules well enough. You can't live up to your own standards of what you think deserves the Father's love well enough, so you start to pretend. Legalism always goes to deception. You start to pretend and you start to put on the face of a good Christian who shows up to church and does all the right things and says the Christian things and listens to the Christian music and inside you're churning and seething and you're desperate for the love of the Father and you don't think you have it. It starts with a good motive to get closer to God. It's okay to want the Father's love, but it ends with trying to keep up appearances and putting on a mask. That's a picture of a man who feels the need of his father's love, but thinks he has to earn it for himself. That's what Jacob's like. The second example, though, of what it looks like to rest secure in your father's love comes from Isaac. Now, if you look back at verses 20 and 26, you'll see two time markers. Right? Remember, this is a narrative. This is literature. It's a story. It's true, but it's beautifully crafted. And we see these two indications of when this story happened. In verse 20, it says Isaac was 40 years old. And in verse 26, it says Isaac is 60 years old. In other words, Isaac was praying and interceding on behalf of his wife for 20 years. 20 years of un being unable to have children and asking God, please heal my wife. Please heal my wife. 20 years. With what attitude shall we pray? Perseverance. How could he keep going under those conditions? What gave Isaac the strength to keep praying for 20 years? Where did he get the patience? It was because he'd learned to rest in God's love. He learned how to be secure in the Father's love. He was already taught the lessons of God's sovereign grace to bring about his promises. He himself was the son of promise. His mother had a barren womb. This was the same boy, Genesis 22, who followed his earthly father Abraham up the mountain and laid down on the altar to be sacrificed. And he saw God the Father provide a sacrificial ram instead of him. That's the boy who looked up and saw the ram in the thicket. Isaac learned that God sovereignly, graciously keeps his promises and his time. 
and he learned to rest in the father's love. So instead of following in his father's path and trying to bring about God's promises by sleeping with another woman, for instance, he rests. And what he knows about God in the past drives him to patient, powerful prayer. How's that for an alliteration? Patient, powerful prayer. We need some of that. That's what rest does. Rest in the Father's love. I said at the beginning, the Father's love, knowing God loves you is transformative and powerful because it makes us into people of patient, powerful prayer. God's salvation comes into our lives. His promises come real to us by grace and grace alone. And resting in that truth and resting in the love of your Father will completely transform your life. It will. Do you feel like Jacob? Do you feel the need to hear that God loves you? Do you need your father to tell you he loves you? Listen, it's not a bug, it's a feature. It's not a bug, it's a feature. Your father in heaven is ready, willing, and eager to show you his love. And you needing to hear that is a good thing. God designed that about you. Jesus needed to hear it too. At his baptism, his father thundered from heaven. He tore open the sky just to tell his son, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And what happened after that moment? Up until then, it seems Jesus led a fairly normal life, 30 years of just being a Nazarene carpenter guy. The father says, I love you from the sky, and boom, he is just shot like a rocket toward the cross. Everything that he needed to do for you and for the Father came out of his security in the Father's love. Jesus needed to hear it. And I would wager that for some of you right now, you need to hear it too. So, I'm going to tell you right now, on the authority of God's word, exactly how the Father says, I love you, to you. Okay? Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's it. That's how. If you're waiting for God the Father to prove his love to you, he's going to keep pointing you back to the cross and say, I did. The blood of Jesus says, I love you. The firstborn went to the cross, bearing our sins. And when Jesus, the firstborn, screamed out to the Father, do you know what he heard back? Silence. So that when you go to the cross, you hear the whisper of God saying, I love you. That's what the firstborn did for you. Paul goes on to say two more very important things. In Romans 5, he goes on to say, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, more than that, whoa, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, 
through whom we have now received reconciliation. Okay, I said two things. One, Jesus reconciles us to the Father. If you trust Jesus, you and the Father are good. There's no more war. There's no more tension. There's no more rebellion. You're good. You can't sin your way out of that. Jesus did something you can't undo for you. You just receive it by faith and you're reconciled. That's the first thing, reconciled. The second thing that he did, well, the second thing that Paul says is now we rejoice in God through Jesus. In other words, we love the Father and we experience the love of the Father through Jesus. That's how we hear God say, I love you. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me, he also implies that through him, the way is, is bidirectional. Through him is the only way that we experience the love of the Father. John 3.16. Did you know that the word so in John 3.16, for God so loved the world, it's not um, a quality word. It's not for God so loved the world. It's actually a, a logical word. It means uh, in this way. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's how God loves the world, by sending his son, his firstborn, to serve the younger. So rest in your father's love. Rest in your father's love as you read the word, as you wrestle in loving, perseverant, persevering, grateful prayer as you receive the body and the blood of Christ at the table. Let him preach his love to you at the Lord's table and rest. Let's pray. Father, I, my heart needed this week for you to say that you love me. And I thank you for showing me the cross in Christ. Thank you for an incredible testimony that you've left us in your word to point us to Christ and all these beautiful patterns and themes and stories that tell us again and again from every possible angle of the love and glory of Christ, the better Esau, the better Cain, the better Adam, the better Jacob. We're thankful for Jesus. As we prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's table, I ask that you will minister to us and help us to repent where we need to repent and help us to rest very secure in your love. Amen. Please take a moment and prepare your hearts.